This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Rosemary, Caleb J., Susanna, Emerson, and Amy. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Rosemary, who asks, During communion, why don't you eat a piece of bread instead of breaking it with your hands? Every week at Grace, you see me do the same thing during the communion service. I take a loaf of bread and break it, then I take a cup and raise it. The significance of those actions is connected to the words I say while I'm doing them. Those words are based on what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11 when he gives instructions on how to administer communion. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We call those words of Paul's the words of institution, and we repeat them every time we celebrate communion because the words testify to the meaning of the signs. The reason I break the bread, but don't eat from it, is that I'm following the wording of 1 Corinthians 11. But of course, I do eat, just not yet. I eat along with everyone else as we distribute the elements. And now Caleb J. asks, How can people bend the commandment, Thou shalt not steal? We talked about how the Pharisees tried to bend the law in my sermon about the first half of Matthew 19, and in that case, it was the law about marriage that they were bending. But naturally, any law can be bent when sinful people want to justify their sin instead of repenting. The Eighth Commandment prohibits theft. Thou shalt not steal. When people bend this law, the way they usually go about it is this. They say, yes, theft is bad, but what I'm doing isn't really theft. They keep the definition of stealing as narrow as they can, in other words, as if the commandment forbids knocking people over and taking their wallets, but not the more subtle ways of depriving people of what is rightfully theirs. But the Westminster Larger Catechism does a good job of reminding us just how broad the definition of theft really is. Every command not to do something includes a command to do the opposite. So when the Bible says don't steal, it's also calling us to complete truthfulness, faithfulness, and justice in all our dealings with one another. That means we must not be guilty of theft, robbery, or kidnapping but also that we shouldn't receive anything that is stolen or deal fraudulently. We shouldn't execute unjust contracts or be unfaithful to our contractual commitments. We shouldn't abuse the trust of others, shouldn't oppress or extort them. We shouldn't use bribery or bring unjust lawsuits against others or take or withhold anything from our neighbor that's rightfully his. And much, much more. 
If you read the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 142, you'll get a full list of everything that's included in that word, steal. The Catechism guards us against narrowing the definition of theft to bend the law, but there's another way to be on guard as well. People claim that in a sinful world, they have to do things like this. Sure, in a perfect situation, we would live by this commandment, but because of the realities of the economy and the way business works in the real world, we have no choice. But whenever you find yourself trying to justify your sin because you have no choice, remember that that's easy to say when you benefit from the evil that you condone, but it's the same logic that's used by other people to do evil to you. Jesus calls us not to bend the law, but to face the fact that the law condemns us. Our only hope of salvation is to appeal to Jesus for his mercy. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Susanna. Let's give her a round of applause. Here's Susanna's question. Why are you in love with worldview? I read your book and I want to know. It's true, I do love worldview. During the summers, I teach at Worldview Academy and I also serve on Worldview Academy's board. And as you mentioned, Susanna, I wrote a whole book about worldview called Rethinking Worldview. Now, if you read that book, you should already have a good idea of how I'm going to answer this question. But for those who haven't read it, I hope this will be helpful. I should start by explaining what worldview is, what that word actually means. Now, every one of us interprets the reality around us for ourselves. We don't see things with perfect objectivity. Instead, all of our ideas are filtered through some fundamental assumptions about how the world works. Those assumptions are called a worldview. For example, Christians make assumptions about reality that go something like this. We see the world as God's creation, and because he made it, the world is under his authority. There is an order to things that comes from God, and even though sin has distorted that order, we still see God's hand in creation. Even though God is so much higher than us and beyond our comprehension, we assume that he can communicate with us, because in the Bible he has, and that we can understand what it is that he's telling us. You might say that all of these assumptions are fundamental to a Christian view of reality or a Christian worldview. But not everyone sees things this way. Some people assume the world has no creator and therefore no one has authority over it. They see no order in the universe and figure that even if there was some kind of divine power, the difference between that power and us is so great that we could never communicate across that distance. If you see the world that way, then Christianity will seem very strange to you. This is a pretty basic idea. Our philosophies are shaped by our perspective. But it's important because it helps Christians see that their faith should shape their whole lives, not just their religious life. There's a common belief in culture today that religious faith is something private and subjective, and that people who have faith should keep it to themselves. It has no business influencing the outside world. 
believe whatever you want and talk about it at your church if you have to, but don't bring it to work. Don't bring it to the public square. Keep it out of school. Don't bother other people with it. The term for this belief is the sacred-secular dichotomy. Sacred means holy, and secular means worldly, and dichotomy means dividing into two parts. The idea is that life is divided between religious activity and worldly activity, and they should be kept separate. But that's a silly way to think about faith, if it's true. There's no other kind of truth that we try to confine this way. No one would tell you, believe in gravity if you want, but don't talk about it in public. It's just the opposite. We expect gravity to be relevant to every aspect of life because it's true. If the Bible is true, then we should say the same thing about it. The Bible is relevant to every aspect of life. It teaches us how to live, yes, but it does much more than that. It tells us who God is and who we are, what's wrong with us and with the world, and how what's wrong can be fixed. It says something about how to do our jobs, how to live under authority and when to stand up to it, what to love and what not to love, and so much more. If you take God's word seriously, then you want to see the world the way the Bible sees it. That's what worldview is, and that's why I'm so passionate about the idea. It's a reminder to us to follow God in every part of our lives. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. Our first one comes from Emerson, who asks, Why are there so many TV screens in the sanctuary? It's true, there are a lot of screens in our new sanctuary. There's one above the stage, two on the sides of the stage, and one facing the stage that you can't see from the floor, but I can from behind the pulpit. At Grace, we don't use any of these screens, but we aren't the only people who use this space during the week. If we owned the space, we wouldn't have them. But for now, we're meeting in a space owned by someone else, and we're grateful to God for providing it, even if we don't use all the equipment that's there. Now, the reason we don't use them is pretty simple. These days, we spend so much time on screens that it's good on the Sabbath to take a rest from screens as we worship. We worship with a printed liturgy, which means you can study everything more closely. It doesn't disappear when the screen changes. You can also take it with you after church and have it all week. Some people look at the liturgy from our Sunday services throughout the week ahead, praying with it, singing the songs, and reflecting on what we said in worship. There's nothing inherently wrong with screens, of course, but our approach works really well for the way we worship. And that's why, although there are a lot of screens in the sanctuary right now, in fact, I just remembered one that I forgot to list, we are sticking with the way we do things. And finally, Amy asks, how old are you? Well, Amy, I was born in the year 1970. That was a full 30 years, three decades before the year 2000. When I was your age, I used to think a lot about how I would turn 30 in the year 2000, which seemed like the far future way back then. Now, of course, the year 2000 is a long time ago, 23 years and counting, which means that I'm now 53 years old. In fact, I've been 53 for over a month, long enough to where I'm finally getting the hang of it. 
If you're curious, I find that 53-year-olds don't remember things as well as people 52 and younger. They also don't see as well now that their eyes are so old. When I was your age, I looked forward to being old, but I also thought 30 was really old. Now my feelings are a little more complicated, but thanks for asking. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions.